Sinclair Wants to Help is a fictional podcast that uses controversial and personal viewpoints to tell bizarre stories. Listener discretion is advised. The corruption of man is limitless. There is no force that motivates them more feverishly than their greed. Their obsession with trinkets of gold and crystal outweighs any sense of nobility, any belief in divinity, and even their preservation of self. They will corrupt the people around them to serve their greed, and even attempt to distort nature to fill the black hole of their avarice. They kill the world with their greed, and their corruption of man and nature can lead only to death. And in turn, the only atonement can come in death. Death is the price all must pay for living. humans. Sorry about that. I soliloquy sometimes. It's a uh, filthy habit. You may have uh, clicked on this thinking it was going to be one of those self-help things that Socrates invented on a lark, and you know, it is. It's just uh, going to be useful. Disorganized, but useful. All those pep talk. They have the goal of trying to get people to be their best selves, but you know, the problem with that is... The best self of your average person can barely keep their own house together and really shouldn't be meddling in other people's affairs. And especially with some of the ideas you guys come up with, I... I knew monotheists could get a bit uppity, but acting like you've never seen a demigod before took it to a whole new level. And even those paths that don't just shrug and point you to a messiah, the ones that try to take a more secular approach, they're basically vague and mean nothing. Take control of your life, have plans and carry them out, seize the means of production. It's basically nonsense. You all need way more help than you know. So, I've decided it's time to help you sort your nonsense out. But you don't want help from just anyone, do you folks? Well, allow me to introduce myself and then we can be friends. Hello, I'm Sinclair. The lies and truths of your world are merely a glimpse of places I've been and the visions I've seen. I've seen gods conquer men, and ants conquer gods. I've seen chickens fight back against their farmers, and eggs fight back against their hens. I've seen the beauties of the world man destroyed, and the beauties of the world reptiles rebuilt. I'm what's politely called a deity of indistinct origin. I'm not fond of the D word that rhymes with the hit song about the weather in California, or the E-H word that my old friend Howie used to write about. But I get that those are a bit easier to say. Deity of indistinct origin is a mouthful. That's why I've always liked the name Soul Tradesman. And, you know, it, des- it it describes my job, and it's much more approachable than Old God. Which is what you're probably going to call me anyways. So why does a god need a podcast? Well, you know, I like to... You know, I generally focus my assistance on a more individual basis. Humans, you're so much fun to watch that I get so wrapped up in the life of one person that I don't get as much time to interfere with other lives as I'd like to. Having a podcast like this, well, 
That just allows me to spread my services far and wide. And it's better than doing video, you know. It's probably better if you can't see me. I had a human friend once who saw too much of a god and... Well, let's just say I've got her ashes around here somewhere. <sighs> Poor Samelli. But audio, it's, it's just a great format. I've, I've had a real fascination with it. Ever since my friend George Burns told me, it was like stealing money. Lots of people are making podcasts now as a way for a quick buck. It's a fun avenue for people to fail to get attention. And, you know, there's nothing that makes my job easier than people screaming into a void. Podcasting might not be the most guaranteed way to make money, but, you know, it's better than cryptocurrency. At least it doesn't create waste. Unless you're Joe Rogan. Back in the day, there were get-rich-quick schemes that wasted a ton of resources, money, and time, and ended up costing way more than they made. Nothing wasted money quite like the plans of 20th century venture capitalists. Well, actually, except for the cryptocurrency people. I go back to them. One of my favorite crazy things started in 1975. This idea was so stupid that it never should have worked, but for a while it did, and it made a ton of money. This was when exotic pets started being a big thing, and dogs and cats started sharing the house with iguanas, parrots, and capybaras. Someone looked at all those weird pet trends and the world and just thought, what's the dumbest pet someone could possibly buy? Pet sharks. And what a trip the 70s were. You know, 75 was the year Jaws came out, and the, that changed movies forever. People loved that shark. They were buying shark toys and shark comic books. They were wearing dorsal fin hats. There were glass-bottom boat rides that would just shovel chum so people could watch feeding frenzies. Honestly, pet sharks were only a matter of time. Humans are a lot like gods when I think about it. When they love something, they'll trap it and smother it with attention so it stays under their control. But of course, you don't have to be Jacques Cousteau to understand that sharks, cute as they are, weren't going to be the easiest pet for people to keep. Sharks are very loving creatures who enjoy cuddles and nose boops, but they're also very hungry creatures who, who can't always tell the difference between a finger that's coming in for a boop and a plump free-range hand. And of course, sharks are adorable and manageable when they're small, but when they've grown up, it's a whole different story. Most people thought that since sharks don't have bones, they would stay proportionally sized at their containers. Well, a couple of dead families and dried up sharks later, they found out that was not the case. Most of you would think, well, why wouldn't they just get rid of the sharks when they got too big? Well, a lot of people tried that, and a lot of people got eaten trying that. Even if you could manage it, a lot of the common breeds were saltwater sharks. People who lived on the coast could manage it, but it wasn't easy for anyone not living over in those areas, and as cruel as people can be, they love their pets. And most of them couldn't stand the idea of getting rid of their carnivorous buddies. They were America's most popular pet, and not just because they had eaten most of the other competition. They did do that, though. Since people couldn't get rid of their sharks, and they had become so common, by 77 there had been so many businesses involved in the trade and care of pet sharks that it had essentially reshaped the U.S. economy. People had to work very hard to accommodate the needs of their shark friends. 
Basements and attics and children's bedrooms, guess why, were converted over to deep sea water holes so that their cute baby sharks would be able to would be able to swim around in good health and have enough room to grow up to become beautiful mature sharks. And new houses were being built with shark ownership completely in mind. That of course made there be some big businesses about how to make the most out of aquatic storage, and that led to scuba equipment getting sold. And boy, you would not believe how much was spent on shark toys, shark fashion, shark beauty pageants, shark teeth cleaning, and all sorts of stuff that hundreds of companies saw as a way to make hundreds of millions. But amongst all these companies, one swam ahead of the whole frenzy, and wanted to have every last bite of the industry. That was Megalodon Treats and Toys. Megalodon Treats and Toys was founded by Leonard Sarkon in 1976. Lenny had been working at a pet store in Ocean Town, Oklahoma around the time the shark craze took off, and seeing all the smiling faces taking home their Uzalati friends gave him a dream. A dream to completely monopolize the shark care industry and see to it that any penny spent on a pet shark was a penny that was going to find its way into his pocket so that he could fulfill his childhood dream of purchasing and demolishing the city of Sarnia, Ontario. Kind of a respectable goal, really. He borrowed a loan from the Cuban government and bought out the owner of the store he worked at, rebranding it as the first of many Megalodon Treats and Toy Stores. Megalodon Treats and Toys sold all the basics and more. Saltwater purifiers, teething pylons, seal-shaped chase toys, multicolored tourniquet sets, industrial rubber tire chew toys, saddles, decorative seaweed, fashionable heavy-duty chainmail, and the ever-vital fluffy shark bed. But Lenny knew that the most important thing about taking care of a shark was tending to its healthy appetite. If a shark didn't have enough food, it would either die or find enough food. And neither of those options was going to profit the Megalodon Company. When sharks were first being adopted, the trend was to feed them the corpses of big animals. Watching them eat was half the fun. Sharks could just tear things up like they're wet cardboard. Oh, and when it's alive feeding, that's all the better. Fear doesn't season the meat, but it does make it much more exciting to watch. But you could feed a shark all the tuna, chicken, and wild boar you could afford, and they'd still want more. People were buying themselves out of the shark-keeping hobby on food alone. By the summer of 78, Lenny saw the need for change. Sharks, he thought, are always hungry, but what's a shark care about what it's eating? Lenny went around to butcher shops, farms, and most of the favored fast food restaurants in the area, buying up bad chop, boiled goods, and any substantial leftovers he could pick up. Lenny's wife, Grunda, would collect roadkill while on her rounds repairing telephone poles, and they pulled their twin children, Mordu and Macy, out of the seventh grade so they could pack up all the detritus in the big sausage casings. And to keep up the fun, the casings were made to resemble big animals like swordfish and Flemish giants. That was the start of Megalodon's most iconic and money-making product, Chum Chow. Chum Chow was an instant success. It didn't just make Lenny Sarkon a rich man, it made Megalodon treats and toys a household name. By the beginning of 1979, Gary the Chum Chow Shark was the most beloved mascot in America, and there was a Megalodon treats and toys store opening in every major city. Many of these stores were converted over from pet stores and butcher shops, which gave Lenny a built-in advantage on the specialty feeding market. Not only could he sell cheap food that everyone could afford, he could be the main source of product for anyone who still wants to give their sharks something meatier. Or squirmier. Lenny had gone from minimum wage to millionaire in a matter of months, but that wasn't good enough for him. 
He was convinced that it was only a matter of time before people imitated Chen Xiao. And when that happened, his dreams of monopoly could be threatened. He refused to build his empire on pillars of sand. He had to make it so that no one could ever compete with his creation. That's where I joined the story. Lenny went through the process of summoning a few gods before he and I got together, but, but I was a perfect fit for him. Lenny valued money above anything else in life, so his soul was already claimed by that nearsighted, number-crunching, dork Plutus. And a lot of my colleagues aren't really interested in mortal wealth, and they only deal in souls. Me, I'm the other way around. A soul is pretty to look at, but you have to take care of them and talk to them and make them feel like a valued part of your collection so they don't keep you up at night with their incessant, depressed wailing. Money, on the other hand, I can see the use in that. Money pays for alcohol, drugs, and Agatha Christie novels. It'd be lovely to have Agatha Christie's soul, but the Abrahamic Corporation traded that to a Nazi years ago, and if you'll pardon the pun, nothing gets out of his web. Even then, I wouldn't want to keep it for long. The upkeep is a pain. So, I was more than happy to work with Lenny as long as he got me a swimming pool full of money. What Lenny wanted was a way to make sure Chum Chow couldn't be replaced by any similar products. A secret recipe that no one could replicate so that the sharks couldn't be satisfied by anything else. Wow, that seemed like an easy fix for me, and all we had to do was get the sharks addicted to something. Lenny suggested marijuana, and I quickly had a conversation with him about that fun fact. Then he suggested nicotine, and I shot that down without a second thought. Lenny, I said, You've seen how your son closet stuff after a second cigar of the day. How aggressive do you think a shark is going to get on a nicotine high? Fortunately, Lenny relented. That's when I had my epiphany. And after I secured a majority in the profits, I ordered thousands of tons of the secret ingredient. Morphine. My plan was twofold. Not only was the morphine going to keep the sharks coming back, I saw a big gap in the market for mood adjusters. Sharks aren't necessarily vicious by nature, they're just... enthusiastic about eating. And that enthusiasm is displayed through monstrous writhing, flailing, and biting. Morphine could take the edge off things, relax, and make sure they weren't always so... grabby with their teeth. After a little bit of trial and error, I found the perfect chum to morphine ratio that was enough to keep our sharkies hooked and mellow, but not so hooked and mellow that they were performing freeform jazz. Holiday season of 79, we introduced the new chum chow to stores, and it took off big. Lenny was truly the shark care king, and I was sure that I'd have enough money to get me through the next century. It allowed Megalodon Treats and Toys to break out of its private company cocoon and spread its beautiful wings to become the powerhouse Megalodon Corporation. Life was good, money was plentiful, and, you know, the sharks that did start performing freeform jazz are pretty good at it. Then the war on drugs started. If I told Lenny once, I told him a thousand times. The war on drugs wasn't going to affect major corporations using chemicals to enforce its control over the masses. It was only going to affect the poor people and minorities who can't fight back. There was no reason for us to change anything. But no, he and Grunda were all worked over with. 
a patriotic sense of opiophobia and painkillers were the enemy. And that meant I had to go back to the drawing board and rethink how we were going to keep sharks on the hook. I went back to my pharmaceutical textbooks and tried to remember conversations I had with Germans during the First World War, and thought about how to crack the nut of a synthetic opiate that people wouldn't be all weird about, at least for a few years. Right when I was getting on a good track, for the love of the sponsors, I would have killed Denny myself if I knew he was going to pull this crap. 1982, I'm ratting a deep in a German research paper, and suddenly on the television, Lenny has, unbeknownst to me, his head researcher, put on some performative press event where he announced that Chum Chow was being immediately discontinued and replaced with new Chum Chow. And that he was confident that new Chum Chow would be the start of the next great age of shark care. And while he was giving this little pitch meeting, I noticed his nostrils are flared up like a pig in truffling season. So you can appreciate how immediately concerned I was when I confronted him in his office, and there was a prairie dog hill of white powder laying on his desk. Lenny, I asked him, what did you put in the new recipe? Lenny dragged his face out of the pile, his face resembling a jelly donut coated in powdered sugar, and it was evidently strawberry filling inside, judging by the bloody nose. Without even saying hello, he starts shouting at me and saying, Sinclair, how dare you come in my office and question me? Yada, yada, yada. You've been taking too long and I had to put something out. Blah, blah, blah. Lenny, I asked him again. What did you put in the new recipe? It was our patriotic duty to change the recipe. Yada, yada. If it's good enough for me, it's good enough for the sharks. Etc, etc. Lenny, I said. Actually, repeat that last part for me again. Before Lenny continued his rant at me, I took a look over at the shark tank that he kept in his office. It was big. It was big and beautiful, a spectrum of different sharks of different sizes happily coexisting. Except they weren't. Not right now, anyways. I don't know if you've ever seen over a dozen sharks varying from bulls, great whites, hammerheads, and black tips, all trying to charge through a sheet of glass at the same time, but it's something you definitely want an immediate explanation for. Unfortunately, as I saw Lenny toss away the tissue he used to clean his bloody nose, I got that explanation. The moment Lenny tossed away that rag, a thresher got the creative idea to just jump out of the tank and flop on his desk, writhing and convulsing to get as much of the white powder into its mouth, nose, and gills as it could. Lenny, I said, Lenny, why in Dagon's name? Did you give the sharks a cocaine habit? Lenny wasn't interested in answering me, fair enough. He was trying to get the shark off of his coke. They say that if a shark attacks you, you're supposed to punch it in the gills. Well, Lenny tried that, but the first swing, wouldn't you know it, his fist goes straight into the thresher's mouth and chomp it. Lenny was screaming and squirting blood all over the place, but Quetzal total bless him. He went in for another punch, and lo and behold, came out of the sea using another hand. By this time, some of the blood spurted close enough to the tank for the sharks inside to have that extra motivation to break on through. The glass crashed open and water splashed all over the office. These sharks, large and small, were hopping and crashing their way towards Lenny. As they closed in, he started shouting to me, but through that pain sobbing, the expletives, I couldn't quite figure out what he was trying to say. I guess he might have been asking for help, but what was I going to do? 
<laughs> 20 blood frenzied sharks trying to get their next coke fix. And believe it or not, most of us gods don't really deal in miracles. So I pocketed all the valuables I could and asked him to say hi to Santa Morte for me. Similar scenes to the bloodbath in Lenny's office were happening across the country. Opiophobia might have been high, but cocaine was the chemical of the moment, and no moral crusade was going to stop that for a while. The economy wasn't just collapsing, it was being torn to shreds. Literally. By the razor teeth of drug-addicted carnivores lusting after the flavor of blood. Wall Street was asunder, the smart suits of stock market confidence men being stained with their own blood and ripped apart with each attack by the muscly beasts. Here was the vision of unrestrained capitalism, the imperial testament to the dreams of Adam Smith, not being brought down by nuclear war or environmental disaster, but by one industry being too central to the economy, one business in that industry consolidating all the power, and bloodthirsty creatures preying on the public's worst habits. And after everything, as I stood outside the Megalodon corporate headquarters and watched Grenda Sarkhan run around in circles with a blunt-nosed six-scale clamped on her face, all I could really think was, that shark is adorable. Well, some of you are probably saying that I'm a liar and that none of this ever happened. Well, yes, but also, lucky you, you didn't have to deal with it. Being a god means I have to deal with the problems of reality and unreality, and if the money I've had to pay back to the Cuban government is any indication, that whole mess was real enough for me. I was able to make a little bit of money by selling my opiate research to some people in Connecticut in the 90s, but I've never been able to shake the feeling that I probably should have made more money off that deal than I did. But thinking about this whole story really made me think that sharks are the perfect pet for someone like Lenny. Sharks, like businessmen, they have no concept of enough. They always want more, even if it makes others suffer, even if it makes their life harder. When blood is in the water, opportunity is in the air. And no matter the situation, they'll go after whatever meal they can find. They'll chase down every last red cent. Sinclair Wants to Help was written and performed by Sean Grebick. You can follow the show on Facebook, Twitter, Discord, and Reddit on the subreddit page r slash Sinclair Wants to Help. If you want to contact the show or ask any questions, email us at SinclairWantsToHelp at gmail.com, all lowercase. We'd love to do a mailbag episode.